Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to say thank you to Lionel Romaine, who became the newest patron of the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday and looks at every Prime Minister in Canadian history in Part 1, but we're on Part 2, looking at every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister. There's also Canada's Great War, which looks at Canada during the First World War, and it comes out every single Sunday. And of course, there's Coast to Coast, which looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway, and it comes out every single Thursday. I do all these podcasts full-time. The writing, the research, the editing, everything. So, every doll you give helps keep it all going, and I truly do appreciate it, and like with Lionel Romaine, I will mention you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at bairdo37. Don't forget, if you do enjoy the podcast, please give it a five-star review. And if you do, I'll make sure I mention you on the air and through my social media. Long before Europeans ever set foot on the land that would be Canada, the area that would be Selkirk was the home to the Anishinaabe and the Saltu people, who followed the immense bison herds that once dominated the landscape. The first Europeans to arrive in the area would be European fur traders and explorers, who began to set up trading camps and areas of trade for companies back east. As those fur traders came to the area, they would bring a rise to a new indigenous culture, the Métis, who would have a long-lasting impact on the area and Canada as a whole. One fort built by these fur traders was located just north of Selkirk along the Red River. Called Fort Maripas, it was built in 1734 after two explorers reported that the location would be a good site for a fort. Returning to the area again, they brought with them 12 men in three canoes to build the fort. The site of the fort is not known today, only identified as five leagues up the Red River on high ground where the marshes end. The fort would produce 600 packages of furs in 1735, and in 1737, officials in the area of the fort reported that the indigenous around the fort had died of smallpox. In 1739, the fort was abandoned for Fort Rouge at the present site of Winnipeg. A second Fort Maripas would be built soon after the other one was abandoned, but there's little documentation regarding this fort. Some say that the original fort was moved to this new location, but there's little to confirm this. It is stated that the fort was rebuilt in 1749 when the indigenous burned it to the ground. By 1793, though, nothing was in the area. 
Fort Gibraltar would become the main fort of the area in 1809, located at the Forks in Winnipeg. After the merger of the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company, it would be renamed Fort Gary and later became the city of Winnipeg. Located near Selkirk, you will find the Lower Fort Gary National Historic Site. Built along the west bank of the Red River, this stone fort played a pivotal role in Indigenous Canadian relations. The fort was home to the Hudson's Bay Company and Indigenous trappers would often journey to the fort to sell furs. It was at this fort that Treaty 1, the first of the numbered treaties, was signed on August 3, 1871. This treaty would lay the groundwork for the next 10 that would be signed between that date and 1921, and the influence of those treaties continues to this day. I actually did an episode on Coast to Coast about the numbered treaties just a couple weeks ago, so if you're interested, check it out. At this historic site, many of the buildings that were built in the 1830s still stand, including the original limestone walls. The fort had been built in 1830 after George Simpson decided to move the original fort to a safer location after it was destroyed in the 1826 Red River Flood. The fort never became a major administrative centre as most residents were near the forks to the south and they did not want to travel to the new fort to do business. As a result of this, Upper Fort Gary was built in 1835 at the original fort site. Lower Fort Gary would serve as a training ground for the Northwest Mounted Police prior to the March West in 1874, and the fort would serve as a mental hospital from 1885 to 1886, an HBC residence, and a golf and country club from 1911 to 1963. The Hudson's Bay Company actually owned the fort until 1951, when it was turned over to the federal government, and it became a National Historic Site in 1958, and was named one of the top 10 National Historic Sites in Canada in 2011. Selkirk gets its start thanks to an event in 1813 when the Hudson's Bay Company sold 410,000 square kilometers of land to the Earl of Selkirk. Soon after, settlers began to arrive in the area. For the next half century, the area would be sparsely populated by settlers, the Métis and the Indigenous, but the town site of Selkirk was still some time away. By 1876, the town site of Selkirk was now in the hands of three speculators, and the first surveys of the future town site would begin. A major reason for this was the planned arrival of the Canadian Pacific Railway, which was supposed to come to Selkirk where a large bridge would cross the Red River, helping the community to become an important stop on the line. Of course, that wouldn't happen, as the bridge and its infrastructure, including roundhouses, would be built in Winnipeg instead. Selkirk wouldn't fade away though, and soon enough the community would have a grist mill and more than 200 people living within the community. Something else would happen in the community around this time as well. It was in 1878 that several farmers came together to form the St. Andrew St. Clements Agricultural Society, and a rodeo and agricultural fair would be formed soon after. That rodeo runs to this very day and is one of the oldest in Canada, and while it was cancelled in 2020 and 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it will return in 2022. The rodeo has now grown from those early days as well, and is one of the most important and biggest rodeos in Western Canada. On July 24, 1882, a warm Monday for the area, the town of Selkirk would be incorporated, with James Kaklu being chosen as the new mayor of the community. A small industrial boom soon followed as the fish from the lake were in high demand and industries of all sorts began to appear in the community. 
As the community grew, they were characters who would pop up as well. One such character was a Mrs. Johnson, who claimed to have been 121 years old, had 23 children, and every New Year's Eve she would go and kiss every man in town for 10 cents. In 1884, construction began on a three-story brick facility on the outskirts of Selkirk that would have a long-lasting impact on the community. The Manitoba Asylum for the Insane would open on May 25, 1886, with a capacity of 167 people, 59 of which were brought in from the Stony Mountain Penitentiary. In 1910, the facility would change its name to the Selkirk Hospital for the Insane, and then the Selkirk Mental Health Hospital in later years. The building would be extended in 1900 and then in 1911, and in 1978 the original building was demolished, but a monument marks its site, made from brick and marble from the building, and commemorated in a ceremony by the Lieutenant Governor on May 29, 1986. A new centre was built with more modern facilities for helping people with mental health issues and treating brain injuries. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. By 1892, the community had 1,836 people inside it. One year after this, a man named Howard Edward Joseph Simpson would be born in Selkirk but he would later gain fame as Bullet Joe Simpson. Earning the nickname Bullet for his fast skating style, he would serve in the First World War and was wounded twice. Upon his return, he began to play professional hockey in the Western Hockey League, where New Zealand alone called Simpson the greatest living hockey player. Simpson would make his NHL debut with the New York Americans in 1924-25, and he would play a total of 228 games in the NHL, recording 40 points. While his NHL career was short, he had a long professional career that ran from his time in the war to 1931. In that time, he won the Allen Cup in 1916 with the Winnipeg 61st Battalion, and he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1963. He would pass away in 1973. Michelle, you stole my thunder. My script is exactly what her script is. So I'm not going to repeat what's already been said. As a young person in this great city of ours, I recall some of the early names, and in growing up, a name like Bullet Joe Simpson was a counterpart to a name like Maurice Richard in Montreal or Gordie Howe in Saskatoon. So I can't think of any other 
older person that deserves more credit than Bullet Joe Simpson, and his name will live on forever, and I'm proud to be part of the ceremony. Thank you. Curling spawned in the area around this time with the birth of the Selkirk Curling Club in 1893. That club would become one of the top clubs in the province in short order with 50 members in 1895. The Selkirk rink also proved to be formidable on the ice sheets, defeating two rinks from Winnipeg in a friendly tournament in 1893, and then doing so again in 1895. The club then went down to Milwaukee, one of only two clubs from Manitoba to do so that year, for the Northwestern Curling Association's annual bond spiel. In 12 games played, the Selkirk ring lost only one, and defaulted on one other to capture the Jobbers' Cup. Upon the team's return to Selkirk afterwards, they retreated to a parade, bonfire, and a banquet as conquering curling heroes. In 1906, the ratepayers in Selkirk voted in favour of allowing the town government to borrow $150,000, or $4 million today, to build a waterworks and sewer system for the community. The most noticeable feature of that system still stands to this day, and serves as a landmark for the community. The Selkirk Water Tower holds 275,000 litres of water and stands 32 metres above the ground. It was built by the Canadian Fairbanks Company and the Minneapolis Steel and Machine Company, and its pump house had the ability to pump up 450,000 litres of water every single day. The entire system would go into operation in September of 1910, and the structure, as I said, is still standing today, and also is receiving a new paint job sometime in the summer of 2021. The community would slowly grow over the next few years, but would not have its first real big boom until 1916 when the steel rolling mill began to dominate the town's economy. Starting as the American Horseshoe Company in 1907, it would move to Selkirk at the start of the First World War, and eventually became the Manitoba Rolling Mills, now known as Gerdau, in the community. It's a mill that still operates and employs many in Selkirk. A very strange event would occur on June 4, 1923, when Alex Martin, the chief of police, and Robert Ramsey, the owner of the Lisgar Hotel, robbed Gaston Gatin and George Country of alcohol valued at $1,200 and then later disposed of it. It was alleged that Martin used his position as chief of police to seize the liquor, but in the end, after standing trial, all of the charges were dismissed. In 1935, an iconic part of Selkirk, which stands to this day, was built. The Selkirk Lift Bridge is a steel truss bridge that spans the Red River and was built to replace the ferry that had existed for many years in the community. The hope for a bridge over the Red River at Selkirk had existed since the 1870s, and the topic even made it to the House of Commons at one point. The total cost of the bridge construction was $250,000, and it provided a great deal of employment for the area, when everyone was hurting for jobs during the Great Depression. On May 15, 1936, the lift-span portion of the bridge was operated for the first time, and today it remains the last remaining lift bridge in the entire province. In 1972, the Marine Museum of Manitoba would open in Selkirk to highlight the marine history of not only the area, but all of Manitoba. The museum operates to this day and features many important boats from Manitoba and Canadian history, as well as a large collection of historical artifacts. Among the ships within the museum grounds are the SS Kenora, which was built in 1897, and it's the oldest preserved steamboat in Manitoba. 
There's also the CGS Bradbury, built in 1915 when it started its service as an icebreaker for the federal government. Other ships on the grounds were built between 1942 and 1963 and include a tugboat, a fishing vessel, and a connection vessel between Warren Landing and Norway House. The community would receive a very special visitor on July 17, 1982, when Princess Anne, the daughter of Queen Elizabeth II, visited the community and attended the Heritage Fair. It was a clear but very hot day when the royal daughter came to the community for the opening ceremonies of the event. Also in attendance were over 500 residents, who crowded into the park and watched as the princess set a bundle of balloons into the air to mark the opening of the big event. The princess would then tour the community, including visiting the Selkirk Mental Health Clinic. In 1986, a very recognizable piece of Selkirk was built when Chuck the Channel Cat, a 25-foot-long fiberglass representation of a catfish, was completed. The catfish was named after Chuck Norquay, who had died doing what he loved the most, fishing in the Red River. As Selkirk is known as the catfish capital of the world, it was the perfect place to honor not only Chuck, but the fishing heritage of the area. If you'd like to learn more about the history of Selkirk and the surrounding area, then check out the Selkirk Museum. Unlike other museums, this one is completely virtual, so you can check it out from home, and you can learn all about the city's past through your phone through their website, even while you're in the community as it educates and entertains visitors and residents alike. I hope you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Lionel Romaine, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.